Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. In episode 41, I introduced you to Dr. John McCaskill, a clinical psychologist from Detroit, Michigan. He's done some extraordinary research in learning disabilities, how they affect children in school, and how special education should be modified to better work with kids who have these challenges. And he offers some very interesting ideas on therapy. Now, my interview with Dr. McCaskill was over two and a half hours long, and I had to break it up into two episodes because the file size for the entire interview was too big for my website's hosting service. So in episode 41, we talked to Dr. McCaskill about his background, how he became interested in clinical therapy for families and individuals with special needs and learning disabilities, some of the misconceptions about learning disabilities, getting the right kind of therapy, what ADHD is and what it is not, and how anxiety and depression are far greater factors in trying to help kids with learning disabilities than previously thought. Now, in this episode, we're presenting the rest of my interview with Dr. McCaskill, in which he talks about how to advocate for your special needs child with schools to make sure they're offering not just the appropriate help, but the correct kinds of help, how families need to ensure that they're also supporting their kids with special needs the right way at home, how parents can make sure they're finding the right kinds of therapies and treatments for their kids outside of school. But first, I asked Dr. McCaskill to talk about dyslexia and the related disorders dysgraphia, which is difficulties with handwriting, and dyscalculia, which is difficulties with math, and the kinds of treatments that he offers for those disorders that people may not be familiar with. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, once we've gone through the process of just figuring out what the issues are and what they're not through that systematic, very thorough evaluation procedure, um, and I should add, you know, I've alluded to you know, context is everything, and there's lots of variables we have to consider to establish context. Um, when someone comes to me for evaluation, um, all of us in grad school were trained do a thorough clinical interview, assess relevant parts of their developmental history, their medical history, um, educational history and experiences, tutoring experiences, any type of other evaluations that have been done, what those findings were, school-based interventions, what's been done or not done, what reactions to that, how successful or not were they, um, look at family history, um, extracurricular activities, social um, interests and activities, I mean the whole nine yards. Be thorough with that. Um, and then depending on what information we get from that interview, and that interview also includes a functional analysis of the symptoms, so looking at systematic patterns of occurrence, um, when are the symptoms more or less likely to occur, under what conditions, where, with what types of activities, for how long, what proceeds or triggers them, then what kinds of things will tend to make the symptoms reduce or get worse. Um, so getting real systematic in that kind of analysis. Depending on what information we get from there, that's what tells us whether um, more specific cognitive testing is going to be necessary. Um, if we're suspecting ADHD or learning disorder or something like that, or some type of information processing weaknesses, well then yes, we proceed with cognitive testing, looking at overall intellectual functioning, which includes higher level comprehension and reasoning capabilities, um, knowledge base, how readily can we access and use that knowledge base um, when we need to under certain types of conditions, um, looking at executive functioning skills, things like impulse control, attention and concentration, mental flexibility, um, sort of thinking on our feet types of problem solving with more ambiguous or less structured situations, um, basic memory and learning processes, both auditory and uh, visual in nature, um, 
auditory processing for speech sounds, so phonemic awareness, uh, knowledge of the sound structure of words, and, and how those real specific uh, parts of, of sound or speech interact and can be manipulated, and how fluently can we apply those skills. Um, verbal fluency skills, which includes being able to retrieve specific words under certain types of demand conditions, and how fluently can we retrieve them and, and then put them out there and use them when we need to. Um, looking at um, what's called rapid naming skills, so not do you know no letters and numbers. I mean, yes, we'll assess that, but going beyond that, um, now when you, when you see just letters in isolation or numbers in isolation um, and you need to name them, um, part of the normal learning curve for most individuals, uh, and this happens through the preschool and early elementary school years, is becoming so adept at recognizing um, all the different symbols that comprise our alphabet system and our number system and even the combinations of those symbols that we call words and math facts, um, being, becoming so adept at recognizing those that we can instantly see it and say it, spell it, read it, whatever we have to do. Um, you know, all the math facts drills, it, it's about being able to recognize the math fact and instantly know, oh, here's the answer to that, without having to do the calculations every single time we see it. We're, the first part of the school years is really building that vocabulary of automatic recognition because those are tools that serve fluency of operations when we get to the higher level schools, I mean skills, um, starting in third grade and, and proceeding thereafter, um, which are really what learning is all about, is higher level comprehension, mastering different knowledge bases, mastering more conceptual kinds of thinking, etc. Um, fluency is just a, a tool that serves the ability to do that more efficiently. Um, so. We assess those kinds of skills, and then we assess academic skills, not just can you read, can you spell, can you write, or can you do math, but how fluently, how automatically, how reliably can you do it. Um, all those things are going to be assessed. And then once we do all that, um, there's another piece of information that I know some professionals in the field include this, some don't, but we're very systematic about it. And um, you know, pretty thorough, and in fact, sometimes can be just a little bit um, more determined in getting this information than uh, some people might like just because it's necessary information. But I ask people routinely whenever I'm doing an evaluation, I want every report card that's ever been produced on a kid, I don't care how old they are or what grade they're in, every report card, progress note, any school evaluations, standardized achievement test results, um, any parent-teacher correspondence that's gone on, email correspondence, anything that will give me clues about what the issues might be and how they have developed over time. And I scrutinize those records looking for um, patterns of skill mastery, patterns of performance, what people were saying about a kid and what that tells me about what the underlying issues might be. I mean, that's all part of establishing context. Um, if I just did my tests, I'd be missing a huge chunk of a kid's life, and I'd be really interpreting some findings in isolation, which means I may or may not know what they really mean. But when I put all the context together, the family history, developmental history, educational history, when I put that together with the numbers that we generate from our testing, that's what really makes the numbers make sense. That's what tells us more what, what they really do and don't represent. Because um, even the numbers can mean different things in different contexts. 
along the way of doing all that, yeah, first question, we're trying to identify what is the fundamental issue, what are the fundamental issues that are causing the mismatch between how the kid's trying to perform and what they really need to do that's then causing the symptoms of frustration, stress, et cetera. What we're also doing, though, regardless of what the, we end up calling the issue, what its name is, we're identifying patterns of strength and weakness, um, what, what's called a functional profile. And ultimately, what I want to know is not just where are the glitches. I want to know what's working well. I want to know all the things that are working just as reasonably fine as they're supposed to be or things that might even be stronger than we might have realized that are just not being accessed and used as well as they need to be. Um, things that can actually be, that we can play more to and use to the kids' advantage more. So I want to know where the glitches are so we'll know what types of skill building needs to occur and or what types of strategies we need to use to minimize the disruptive influence of those glitches. But I also want the information about what's working well so that the strategies we're developing not only minimize disruption from glitches, but also play to the strengths more effectively so that we can work around the weak spots and use those as strengths more to our advantage to understand things and to perform and show people what we really know and what we really are capable of doing. So once we've gone through all that process, step one is to do what I call demystification. And to be perfectly fair, uh, I didn't make up the term. I stole that from Mel Levine, who's a developmental pediatrician. But I like the term because that is a lot of what I'm doing. It's just demystifying this whole thing that just seems like this big, ugly animal that's attacking the kid. Uh, oftentimes the kids, at the point that I'm meeting with them, um, don't feel comfortable in their own skin. They feel inadequate. They feel like no matter what they do, they just don't have full control of their faculties. No matter what they try, they ain't working. And they feel like either they don't have control of their body or they're being attacked. So what I'm trying to do is demystify this thing and say, look, there's a logical basis for what's been going on, and here's what it is. Here's the, the glitches, and here's how they've been working to disrupt your efforts and produce the problems. Here's the strengths that actually those moments where the stars align and things work well, it's because you did X, Y, and Z to actually use these strengths more effectively. And we need to just be more systematic about that. It's been random so far. We just need to t develop strategies that help you to do this more reliably. Um, and whatever those strategies are, whether it's changing the performance parameters, like giving extra time, or breaking complex material down into more simpler components, completing it over the course of several shorter sessions as opposed to one longer session, um, using uh, technology tools to enhance reading or to structure and enhance writing or to help with math or to help with note-taking. Um, there's lots of strategies that can be put into place that are really pretty simple and make logical sense once we understand why we're doing what we're doing. So I'm helping the kid's parents and the kid fundamentally to understand all this stuff. Uh, to whatever extent I can, I also want to help the people working with the kid, namely teachers and tutors, understand this stuff as well. Um, and one of the fundamental points that I want to help the kid get, especially in that demystification process, is that a lot of times by the time I see a kid, after so many years of seeing things not work and seeing things click for their peers, but no matter what they've tried, it's not clicking for them. Well, it's somewhere between the third and fifth grade years, just after enough years of having this happen, plus there's a normal developmental shift that occurs in terms of how the brain is able to generalize information and conclusions we can draw from the information. That's where 
kids that historically have seemed pretty confident and motivated and very pleasant uh, start to develop a little, little bit of a complex. Their confidence takes a hit. Their self-esteem starts to take a hit. Um, they start to develop ideas that I'm just dumb. I just can't. Um, something's wrong with me. I'm broken. Whatever the words are they might use. It starts to emerge usually between the third and fifth grade years sometime. And what I want to help them understand is that the glitches that are causing the problems are not the same thing as intelligence. They're, they're separate things. Intelligence being the ability to think, understand, reason, problem solve, that's not usually where the problems are. It usually has to do with very specific operations that allow us to use those higher level skills, that disrupt our efforts to put those skills into play or that prevent us from doing it. So things like phonemic awareness or auditory processing glitches or word retrieval glitches, memory process glitches, executive functioning weaknesses, all those things can disrupt our efforts to use our intelligence more effectively and more reliably. Um, but they are separate from intelligence as vision is from intelligence. You know, I'm, I happen to be nearsighted. I have to wear glasses or contacts if I'm going to see anything reliably. Um, without them, things are pretty blurry once you go beyond a foot or so from my face. Um, and without glasses or contacts, if I'm asked to read stuff or if I'm asked to drive safely, um, it's a challenge. Um, I can pull it off if I really concentrate hard, um, if I really hold the material close to my face, or if I really just drive very slowly uh, and be very careful with my driving. But it, it's, it's with a lot of trepidation, and it takes a lot of mental energy to do that. I mean, I'm, when I'm concentrating that hard, I can feel my brain and my uh, the, the eye muscles uh, starting to, to get tired pretty quick. I can feel my brain starting to get tired pretty quick. And the process for example, of reading and understanding things so that I can then competently know something and answer questions about it, it's pretty slow. Um, and at some point, I'm going to have to take breaks. The process of getting through it is going to be slower. And if you want me to go fast, then I'll start skimming and taking educated guesses. And just because of my experience, I'll be right a little, little bit of the time. Um, but the more I need to get specific about whatever's written on this particular page, um, at some point, I'm going to start making mistakes. I'll miss relevant information. I'll start to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, like I'm stupid, but I'm not. It's just because I couldn't see. Information couldn't get through my, my eyes into my brain. So my brain had nothing to work with. Once I use a very simple tool, i.e. glasses, to nullify the impact of that glitch, now information flows much more expediently, and I can perform at a more normal pace and still get the information and then do something with it. And so that's the kind of an analogy that I try to help kids get, is that all the strategies that we're going to develop to nullify or minimize the impact of these memory glitches or whatever they might be, it's just like eyeglasses minimizing the impact of my vision glitches and just allowing me to use my intelligence more effectively. But it's nothing more than that. They're just tools that improve fluency. And that's really what it all comes down to. So that kind of leads to the other point I try to help kids get during the demystification process, which is it's like with dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia. It's never that a kid can't read, can't write, can't do math. It's always that they can do it, but they can't do it 
as fluently or reliably or as efficiently as they need to. Um, it's more laborious. It takes more deliberate concentration and effort. It's, it doesn't become as automatic for them as easily or as quickly as it does for everybody else or as it's supposed to, to do. Um, so ultimately, I wanted to get the point that, yes, you can read. It's not that there's no skill at all. And that's kind of a myth that people have about learning disorders. A lot of people think that that's when somebody can't do something at all. That's never true. It's absolutely never true. Um, it's always about fluency. And the only, only difference from one person to another is how much is fluency an issue. Um, but helping them get so there's a separation between intelligence and the glitches and that it's not complete lack of ability. It's just disruptions to fluency. That's what we're trying to address. And that kind of logically leads into what do we do about it? Well, we, number one, I, I emphasize that there's a lot of very specialized, educationally oriented technology um, that really, they're just tools that minimize or eliminate the need for some of those fluency glitches that help us to get information more expediently, draw a more direct line between the information and our higher level reasoning skills and allow us to produce product more effectively. So they either streamline the process of getting information in and or structure and expedite the process of getting information out. Um, so there's, there's writing applications, there's note-taking applications, there's books in audio format, there's all kinds of things. And just trying to get across the point that they're just tools. They're just tools in the toolbox to work around the fluency glitches, just like the eyeglasses are tools to work around the vision glitch. And then the behavioral strategies, the changes in performance parameters, extra time, more selective um, amounts of work to be done. Um, like with dyscalculia, it's one of the more important things is, number one, especially with kids third grade and, and up, let them use a calculator and let's be more selective about how many problems we're asking them to do, or especially be more selective about how many problems we're asking them to show all their work with. Um, yes, as an old math nerd, remembering the engineering background, I'm a big proponent of show all your work because that's a way that you hold yourself accountable for the systematic process of working through the problem. But that holds true for people that don't have learning disorders. For people that do, it's more effective to focus on quality, not quantity. So, you know, less is more, as one parent put it. Um, don't make them show their work for every single problem. Let them show their work for a select number, sufficient that you can see, yes, the kid knows what they're doing. It's not just an accident that they got it right. Um, but then don't torture them. For the rest of them, let them just get the answer out there and let them move on. Um, beyond that, um, the, the ongoing consultation and advocacy role that I mentioned earlier, um, consulting with people about what are the relevant things to be looking for in terms of school support or school services, um, how do we access it, how does the procedure unfold. Um, I do a lot of, I provide a lot of information on those points whenever I meet with people to go over the results of an evaluation, but I also emphasize that ongoing consultation on those points is not only available, it's probably going to be necessary in many cases. And if people ask me to go to the school meetings with them, to basically be there as a professional to, number one, help people understand what the issues are and what they're not and, and why they're not what they might have been thinking they were, just from a real data-driven standpoint. And then number two, just to, to help them advocate um, for 
consideration of the right kind of services in the first place and then, and, and then securing the, the appropriate services, I'm happy to do it. Right. It means that I have time in my schedule allotted for actually going to the meetings and providing people with a consultation and preparation for those meetings um, and doing the follow-up afterwards um, just because it, that's necessary because the whole – the whole thing can get pretty overwhelming pretty fast. Right, right. Well, that was that leads into the next question that I wanted to bring up, which is, of course, uh, you're offering advocacy services for parents in getting the right kinds of support in schools. Many school districts here in Michigan and, from what I understand, 22 other states in the United States of America refuse to even recognize that dyslexia actually is a learning disorder. Um, so what could parents do with schools that won't or refuse to even address the disability that the child has? Well, I guess there, there's two relevant points there. Number one involves, and I think the, this is the more practical point, it, it involves fundamentally understanding that there is a difference between some clinical terms that healthcare professionals like me would use in terms of understanding what an issue is and diagnosing it um, just for purposes of giving people sort of a, a rubric for understanding how and why things work the way they do, um, as well as just officially documenting, yes, this issue is here and it's legitimate. Um, there's a difference between the terms that we might use versus the terms the school might use. Um, by and large, professionals in the schools, whether they're the school psychologists, the social workers, guidance counselors, etc., do not have the appropriate training or the credentials to be able to diagnose anything. Um, so they can't. They, they can't legitimately identify um, through their own processes things like dyslexia, or ADHD, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, etc. Um, now, having said that, they can very legally and very appropriately use those terms in their documentation that says, here's the issue that we're addressing. Um, they just have to make sure that they specify that this condition's been diagnosed by somebody else, by, by another professional, by somebody with the appropriate training credentials to actually do that. So whether it's the pediatrician or a clinical psychologist or a neurologist or a psychiatrist, they have to just, they can, they can use the terms. Um, so-and-so has been diagnosed with dyslexia, and we are addressing difficulties with the following. Um, they can legitimately say that in their paperwork, but they can't in and of themselves make the diagnosis. Um, they can't say, we think he has. They can't say, we've diagnosed him with, because um, they just can't do that. Um, there was a, a misunderstanding for a long time where a lot of school professionals, and I'm sure that this still, still happens, a lot of school professionals um, thought that they could not use the word dyslexia in their paperwork um, just because of this issue of, gee, we can't diagnose anything. And that always struck me as a little bit weird because they had no problems using terms like ADHD or asthma or epilepsy or diabetes, things which they also can't diagnose, um, which have to be diagnosed by somebody else. But they were very regularly using those terms in their paperwork. So-and-so has been diagnosed with ADHD, so-and-so has ADHD, so-and-so has epilepsy, and so we need to do these services to address these difficulties they're having because of that. That kind of lingo was happening all the time. Why all the avoidance of the term dyslexia? Um, I'm not sure that I really fully understand the answer to that question, um, other than I've just kind of 
kind of given up on trying to understand it because what I know is that, yes, legally, they can use the term. And so I just started making that point to people that, look, you can use the terms like you've been using these other terms. Um, you just need to make sure that you clarify that they've been diagnosed by somebody else. That's all. Um, the other thing that kind of comes into play here, number one, um, the U.S. Department of Education just put out a um, clarifying position paper about a year ago, or actually a statement that was made about a year ago. I think it was in October of 2015. Um, just clarifying for all the districts around the country, there's nothing in the law that says you cannot use the word dyslexia in your documentation, whether it's for 504 plans, student support plans, IEPs, whatever. You can use the term. You absolutely can. You just can't diagnose it, and you just got to make it clear that it's been diagnosed by somebody else. But yes, you can, and frankly, when it's applicable, you should. When a kid has been legitimately diagnosed by somebody else, you should use it in your paperwork. There's no reason not to. So the U.S. Department of Education has been very, very clear about that. Um, some schools will tell parents that um, the state of Michigan doesn't recognize dyslexia as a legitimate disability. It actually does. Um, the Michigan Department of Education's uh, website, if you look at um, their rules and regulations pertaining to um, identification and certification of eligibility for services as a, a student with a specific learning disorder um, or even other health impairment, OHI, um, they actually do use the term dyslexia as one of the potential conditions that might lead to a kid getting qualified for services. So it's in black and white in the state of Michigan's rules and regulations. Um, so anybody who says that state of Michigan doesn't recognize it is either seriously misinformed or misleading folks. I'd like to think it's the former, not the latter. Um, but ultimately, kind of getting back to the more practical point of, you know, aside from can they use the word, which clearly they can, in terms of what schools are doing, they honestly don't even have to use any diagnostic terms at all in order to consider or certify a kid's eligibility for special education services because the way IDEA is written, they don't have to. There's, there's no need for them to get into the business of diagnosis. All they have to do is show that there is a very specific pattern of cognitive or actually academic strengths and weaknesses and then cognitive strengths and weaknesses that are systematically related to that pattern of academic strengths and weaknesses in terms of mastery of academic skills as well as fluent applications of those academic skills. So what the rules are saying is that um, we need to look for patterns of strengths and weaknesses that are systematically related, and then we need to look for evidence of significant adverse impact in terms of the student's academic achievement and or academic performance. Now, the law, as written right now, doesn't clarify what they mean by performance, or more specifically, the distinction between performance and achievement. Um, so I think there's some latitude there in terms of how people interpret it, and that may be intentional. Um, but the way that I have interpreted that is we need to look for systematic patterns of either underachievement in terms of just fundamental mastery of basic reading or spelling or mathematics skills, and or disruptions to fluent applications of those skills. So in my understanding, academic performance really translates into 
performance fluency or efficiency. So one might actually have the capability to demonstrate word recognition skills or basic spelling skills under optimal conditions, i.e. untimed opportunities for multiple decoding attempts, multiple reading attempts, multiple spelling attempts, and self-corrections of errors, which can lead to an okay score in the end with enough time and, and effort put into it. Um, but it's a laborious, disfluent process. Um, but then there's also, you know, aside from can you do it eventually, there's the issue of now how fluently are you doing it? Is it happening as automatically as it needs to? Is it as efficient as it needs to be? Because if you can do it, but it's just horribly inefficient, well, then you're going to be misallocating a lot of your mental resources to actually doing it on a day-to-day basis, which means that um, you're going to get prematurely fatigued, things are going to break down, you're going to be more prone to erratic error patterns, um, and or things are not going to get finished. And not only is it going to be inefficient, at some point the quality is going to suffer and things actually getting completed are going to suffer. Um, So the law is very clear. You don't have to show patterns of deficit with both achievement and performance fluency. You just need to show systematic patterns of deficit in one of those areas, not necessarily both. Um, So ultimately, regardless of what we're calling the condition, it's still going to boil down to what is the evidence of adverse impact on the student's optimal achievement, i.e., how well can they and have they mastered the curriculum, and or the day-to-day fluency of their operations, their operationalization of those skills that they theoretically have mastered. Um, And that's really all that needs to be identified as far as saying, does a kid qualify for services or not? Um, So, you know, what I get kind of to sum that up in a, in a short statement, um, I tell people this because they're going to hear it from the schools too. Having a diagnosis is a necessary but not sufficient condition for being certified as eligible for services. You have to then go the next step to show, now what is the nature and the extent of disruption to the kids' learning and or performances? And that's really, that, those are the points that I t- tend to emphasize when I'm writing up my evaluation reports is here's here's the evidence that says here's the nature and extent of disruption to both optimal learning as well as day-to-day performances. Because that's the evidence that's going to say whether it gets eligible for service or not. So I guess kind of the upshot of all that is regardless of whether the school wants to recognize dyslexia or not or believes in dyslexia or not, um, in the end doesn't really matter. Number one, they don't have the qualifications to really to diagnose that in the first place. Um, I guess a more crude way to put it was to really even render an opinion on that topic in the first place. Now, they still will, but at the same time, it kind of doesn't matter. If a competent professional has diagnosed it and a parent says, I want that referenced in the, in the paperwork, it has to be referenced. Um, they just need to make sure that they attribute it to the right professional and not to themselves. Um, but even beyond that, you don't even have to have that argument if you don't want to. In the end, it's still going to come down to where are the areas of weakness and what's the nature and extent of those weaknesses. And that's all we really have to focus on. Mm. Making sure that they get the right help for uh, what's going on. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, a couple of points, you know, getting back to your original question of, you know, how do we help parents deal with this? Number one, um, it kind of gets back to that demystification process I was talking about earlier at the end of the evaluation. It's all about let's really fully understand the issues in front of us as much as we possibly can. So know the condition, 
know its practical implications, know how it's defined, know what are the basic mechanisms that drive it, you know, know how to operationally define it, inside and out, know it as much as you can. The more you know about that, the better you're going to be able to help people understand how it's playing out and why that, what that tells us about what the kid needs and why. Um, number two, know their kid. There's, I mean, just, and a lot of this goes back to, you know, at the end of all this, um, no matter what people came in asking for or complaining about, when we go through the history and then we actually sort of flush out what's really going on, nine times out of ten, most parents intuitively were reacting to the correct issues long before anybody else did. Um, they just spent a lot of time either hearing people say that they were wrong, it was all in their head, they were being anxious, they were overreacting, um, or hearing alternative explanations that somebody thought made sense and that, geez, seemed to kind of make sense for a while. But yet, at some point, they realized that really wasn't explaining everything because the problems were still happening. So I just encourage people to just go back to the fact that they're the experts on their kid. Nobody else is. They know their kid better than anybody else, better than me. Um, and ultimately, trust their gut. I, what I try to t do at the, you know, at the end of all these discussions is validate those initial impressions that actually were on target at some level. They may not have known exactly what they were reacting to or why, but they usually were reacting to the right thing. Um, it, when, when, when things actually happen the way they're supposed to happen, when I provide people with information about what's going on and what it all means, nine times out of ten, I'm not telling them something that's earth-shattering or that seems like it's coming out of left field. Nine times out of ten, I'm actually telling them something that at some gut level they kind of already knew. All I'm doing is crystallizing the understanding and then helping them to articulate what it was they were reacting to and, and what they were seeing and, and why they were doing some of the interventions they were kind of just naturally doing anyway, like reading to their kids, like taking dictation for their writing assignments. Um, There's a reason for that, and it wasn't them enabling their kid. It wasn't them coddling their kid. They were reacting to a legitimate struggle because uh, most parents don't start off doing those things. They start off trying to get the kid to do it themselves, um, and they only step in whenever it becomes obvious that that isn't that happening or it can't happen. Um, and so part of that is just reminding them about the normal motivations that have been driving the kids' actions all along, that have producing, been producing the stress and the frustration and the shutdowns and the, the resistance, et cetera. Um, pursuant to all that, just help parents know what works and what doesn't work. They know their kid. They know their condition. So logically, they're going to have a really good idea about what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, and then through the school advocacy portion of things, um, I direct them to their appropriate websites, but I also provide consultation as needed just to help them better understand as much as they can or as much as they need to know about the different school procedures, the lingo, and that fundamental difference that you know, there is between clinical terms and clinical intervention um, approaches versus school terms and school-based intervention. Um, there's different sets of criteria that one has to meet for diagnosing something versus certifying eligibility for services. And, you know, the law is also very clear on this other point, which is um, having a diagnosis, a legitimate diagnosis of a learning disorder, um, again, while it's unnecessary, it's not a sufficient condition for saying a kid is eligible for special ed services. It is possible for a kid with a very legitimate learning disorder um, just because of how mild it might be or how well they're able to 
compensate with their intelligence or lots of efforts, lots of tutoring support, ability to use context clues to kind of push themselves through things, even if it's inefficient. If they're able to compensate enough that we just can't identify enough evidence of severe enough adverse impact to learning or day-to-day performances, it's possible that the kid might not qualify for special ed services, which is usually where we start talking about a 504 plan as opposed to an IEP. Um, so helping people to understand that, that that's legitimate. Um, and it doesn't mean the kid can't get help. It just means it all comes back to what's the right kind of help. Um, but the other point I, I try to help people get there, along with no in-school procedures, is when you t- look at the practical differences between an IEP and a 504 plan, really what it comes down to in most cases is does the kid need more direct, explicit, specialized instruction in certain types of academic skill sets? If the answer to that question is yes, that's where an IEP certainly needs to be considered and may actually be the most appropriate approach, especially with elementary school students and oftentimes with some middle school students. But beyond that, one specific aspect of service, um, when you start looking at specific classroom accommodations, changes in performance parameters, ability to use assistive technology resources, um, testing accommodations, you can get all of the same accommodations with a 504 plan that you can get with an IEP. The only difference is do we need that more intensive specialized instruction or not? And if the answer to that question is no or well, that'd be nice, but not really necessary because the specialty tutoring that we're, we're going to do outside of school is actually going to meet that need. Well, then that's when it may not be, even be worth the time and the energy involved in fighting for an IEP. Um, that being said, I typically advise people to ask the school to consider any and all potentially relevant options because, bottom line, we want to make sure that we've considered everything and, and not missed some possibility that actually might be relevant for a kid. Um, so helping them know that there's differences in those terms and those procedures, and but also helping to, I guess, sort of put some of their fears to rest in terms of, you know, it has to be an IEP, otherwise the kid won't get help. And that's not that's not usually true. Um, there's actually ways to get appropriate accommodations in place that don't involve an IEP. It all kind of comes back to what does the kid really need, and then, you know, I guess you know, kind of going back to the question of what kind of treatments do we do. You know, I, the one thing I forgot to mention earlier is we, in cases of learning disorders, um, generally some type of specialty tutoring outside of school is going to be necessary. Because even if a kid is young enough to qualify for IEP to get special instruction in the elementary years, generally that's not going to be enough to actually um, do the job. And quite honestly, a lot of the educational specialists in schools are not trained in the more specific multi-sensory techniques that have proven to be effective for things like dyslexia. Um, and so tutoring typically is, is part of the treatment plan as well. Let's move on to the uh, the whole family because uh, obviously the family dynamic for kids with special needs is important and sometimes families may not understand that they are not giving their child with special needs the right kind of support in the family environment. So what kind of uh, services do you offer and what kind of suggestions do you have for families that are having a difficult time understanding what's going on with their kids? Well, it, I think it's, um, you know, the a lot of the, I guess, mechanical aspects to the answer to that question, um, we just covered in the question about the treatments that we offer 
and the recommendations are made coming out of our evaluations, so the demystification process, um, recommendations for technology, and the rationale for that, mm-hmm. you know, i.e., nullifying the impact of, of glitches and playing the strings more effectively, all in the name of producing not just better quality performances, but more fluent performances, more importantly, um, the specialty tutoring, the educational consultation and advocacy services, and then follow-up, whether, it, whether it's um, therapy, um, working on more effective um, stress management strategies, um, anxiety management, um, or even just some, some ongoing parent counseling just to continue to refine their perspective on the situation and understand not just, okay, fundamentally what's the condition and what does it mean, but practically speaking, how does it all play out and how does that influence um, which interventions are going to be most helpful and which aren't and, and how to sort of retool our thinking and, and modify intervention strategies as needed. Um, so, you know, coming out of all that, part of... I guess, you know, even before we get to the evaluation findings and all those recommendations I kind of outlined, our evaluation process and the process of doing therapy, i.e. therapeutic intervention, um, they're they're intertwined. And in my opinion, a good professional is constantly doing both assessment and therapy pretty much all the time, no matter what the – I guess, explicit focus of their activities are. So if we're doing an evi- a formal evaluation, there's still therapeutic aspects to, that, to our um, intervention there. Um, and if we're doing therapy, we're constantly trying to assess how well is this working, are there improvements being made, if not, why, and then retooling our approach to things. Um, so we have to constantly be doing those things all, all together. So therapeutic intervention starts with the very first phone contact and then the very first face-to-face meeting. Um, Yes, it's about getting information. It's also about establishing a relationship. Um, I will, my general approach with folks um, is, is, and the specific words and the specific way I approach this might change from one situation to another depending on what people need and and what they're saying when they come in. Some people are, are have a whole list of things that they've been preparing and they're very organized, and some people have no clue where to start and they just need some guidance on those points. Um, and I basically just provide some structure for them. But generally speaking, my approach is to, once I've kind of given people an, an orientation to um, what we want to try to accomplish and sort of how things are going to work, um, my first step is to let them know what I want to do before I ask any questions at all. It's just to listen to what they have to say. Um, they clearly have questions or they have concerns, and they didn't just come up overnight um, that, that led them to call and to schedule the meeting in the first place. Um, I want to hear them describe what's going on, what they think the reason might be. Even if it's not right, I still want to hear what people think, um, what other people have said, whether they agree with other people's opinions or not, um, I just try to try to set the stage for. I want to get any and all information out onto the table, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether it ends up being right or wrong. Right now, it doesn't matter. It's all data, and it's all about trying to understand systematically what are these symptoms represent and what's the context that's relevant for understanding them. Um, so I encourage people just to tell me everything, and I let them know. I want to listen, and I'm as I'm listening. Yes, there are certain um, 
points that I know I want to cover. There are certain questions that I know I want to get addressed. And if they're already answering those questions or covering those points through their initial presentation to me, well, that's nice because we've just sort of met both needs all at the same time. Um, but I'm just listening to them and gathering information and gathering information. And then once people have sort of finished saying whatever they have to say, and there's really like, gosh, I can't think of anything, anything more to say, that's when I will then start jumping in and asking more specific questions um, to either get them to elaborate on certain points, provide some examples to illustrate what they mean by something, because sometimes when people describe things, they're describing it the best they can, but it may not mean exactly what they think it means. And so I, I try to very you know, systematically um, but gently steer people away from invoking their interpretations on the things and just get very specific examples of, of what's happening here. Um, I want, I want to be just as clear as I possibly can, and I don't want to make assumptions about what may or may not be happening. I want to pin it down as specifically as I can and see what the patterns of data end up telling us. Um, so I'll, I'll ask questions about the, the you know, systematic variance of the symptoms, what situations are occurring in, more likely than not, when do they start, any way, shape, or form, how have they changed over time, are there situations where they don't occur, um, what situations seem to make them better or worse, and then relevant aspects of developmental, medical, educational history, what all have you tried, what all have you considered, whether you think it's right or not, um, what's worked, what hasn't worked, um, tutoring, therapy, any kind of techniques, um, and even encourage people to tell me about um, alternative treatments they may have done, uh, things that may have no credible scientific basis, but at the same time, gosh, seem to make logical sense for some reason. So, you know, vision therapy, vitamin therapy regimens, whatever the case might be. I want to know anything and everything that's been out there because not only is that telling me a lot about, you know, how, how the kids reacted and, and what that may tell us about the issues, it also tells me a lot about people's orientation and wh what their value system is. Um, and whether I agree with something or not kind of doesn't matter. Um, in the end, I'm going to tell people what I think and why I think it, but I also want to respect their need to, in the end, kind of flush things out for themselves and make sure that they're on the right path. And so even if I know, for example, vision therapy has no credible scientific support behind it for, as, a, as an intervention for dyslexia, um, it doesn't improve literacy. I mean, it just, it just doesn't. It doesn't address dyslexic symptoms at all. Um, if somebody feels like they really need to go there, if they just need to put that what-if question to rest, um, I'm going to tell them why I'm not recommending it, but I'm also going to say, okay, fine. If you need to try it, try it. Here's what we should look for to tell us whether it's working or not. Here's the kind of improvements we should see, not just on the tasks in the, in the person's office, but it should be generalizing into real-world change so that they can be more systematic in answering their own questions. Um, and I let them know. I'm, I'm going to be there to provide ongoing consultation and support for you, regardless of how this ends up playing out, um, regardless of how long it takes. So that's all happening in, that, in those, that first meeting as we're gathering information. I'm also developing a relationship. And what I want people to know is, you know, I'm a very straight shooter. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold back. Um, how I say something might change, the specific words I, I use might change, depending on circumstances and what's going to be more, what's going to make more sense to somebody. Um, but I'm going to tell people what I think and why I think it. And if I don't agree with something, somehow, some way, I'm going to get that point across. Um, but you know, I want people to know that what I'm, I'm going to tell them what I think, regardless of whether they agree with it or not, because I want them to know I'm going to be honest with them. 
I don't want anybody to ever think that um, I'm holding something back just because um, I'm scared that I'm going to, you know, lose their favor or um, yeah, I'm going to overwhelm them and they're, and they're, they're going to go away. I mean, if it happens, I mean, I try to, you know, tailor how I approach things and how, how I try to pace how I approach things and what words I use uh, to make sure that it comes across in a way that makes sense and doesn't overwhelm people. At the same time, they got to know I'm, I'm going to shoot them straight because if people can't trust that, they're not going to trust anything that I have to say. I, I, want, them, I want them to never doubt that. And all that's happening in the first meeting. It's all about establishing a therapeutic relationship and a basis for all the conversations and all the interventions that are, that are going to come. So through the course of that, what I'm also doing is validating their reactions to things, helping them to articulate things that perhaps they just weren't sure what they were reacting to and why, um, and over the course of time, help them to very logically understand what this pattern of data is telling us and also how it rules out some of the assumptions we were making before or some of the myths that we might have brought to the situation. Um, in a way, helping people to become a little more systematic and scientific in their understanding of things without just coming right out and saying, here's what it is, here's what it's not, you were wrong about that, I'm right, and here's why. I mean, that's, that's really not an effective way to get a point across. Um, it's all about just helping people to understand, look, you're doing the best with what you got, and you have been all along. Um, now let's just let's let's evaluate it. And nine times out of ten, people reach their own conclusions um, about what's right and what's wrong as a, as a result of this series of conversations that we're having, just pinning things down further one step at a time and eliminating erroneous conclusions one step at a time. Um, now, yes, that works most of the time. And by the time we reach the point of the evaluation being done and now we're talking about what it means and what to do about it, most people are, are getting on point um, pretty quick at that point. Um, but sometimes not. And sometimes after we've had these more series of discussions, if someone is, is still not really fully getting it, um, not really fully seeing why their kids doing what they're doing or really misinterpreting it and mismanaging it, um, sometimes I do have to be more direct and say, look, this is a problem and here's why. Here's why it's playing out the way it's playing out. Um, having established a relationship through, the, through that initial meeting and the series of conversations that follows, that then gives me a stronger basis from which to be that, kind of, that direct if I need to be. Um, if I didn't have that relationship and I just you know, pulled rank and said, well, you know, I'm the professional and I'm trained in this kind of stuff and I know what I'm talking about, I might be right, but I, it would be arrogant. And most people would just say, tag with you, buddy, and, and not pay attention to what I'm saying. Um, they still might not, but I got a much better chance that they're actually going to at least stop and think about it and take it seriously um, if, if I just approach it with a lot more respect. If I've already got that relationship established, I've already communicated respect for them, whether I agree or not, um, they at least know I'm telling them the truth and I'm being respectful about it, and they'll, they're at least more inclined to consider the points. And one of the points that I also try to get across to folks is, look, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think and why I think it. I'm going to recommend things, and I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to not recommend things. I'm going to tell you why. But in the end, it's your choice. It's your kid. You don't have to do anything that anybody recommends other than not hurt your kid physically. Um, beyond that, which most parents aren't doing, um, I mean, it happens, but rarely, 
beyond that, they don't have to do anything. Um, and just reminding them that, look, in the end, it is your choice. Um, that may go without saying, but it's, it's, it's very important in terms of just continuing to convey that kind of respect to folks. Um, it's all about, yes, getting a point across, yes, sometimes getting more direct and more forceful with it, but in the end still taking a one-down position uh, and not being arrogant about it. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing to be gained by, by taking a heavy-handed approach in things. So it's just all about trying to help them retool their thinking and cultivate a little bit either more realistic, a little bit more broad perspective, but doing it at their pace more systematically on their terms. Um, in the ideal world, I'm just functioning as a glorified tour guide, just trying to help to organize and kind of structure their thinking that's happening anyway, um, just giving them some words to articulate what they're already thinking intuitively. Um, in the less ideal world, I'm doing that, plus sometimes being a little more forceful on a point, maybe even challenging somebody's assumption. Like, okay, if that were true, why is X, Y, and Z happening? How does that, ex how does that fit with all these other examples that kind of contradict that point? I mean, if I have a relationship with somebody, I can have a conversation like that if they understand where it's coming from. If I have no relationship, I'm just pulling rank, that's a good way to really upset somebody and still not get the point across. So it, it's all about recognizing that therapy and assessment are happening simultaneously, and therapy is starting from the very first intervention uh, or the very first meeting, and just continuing to take that approach to things, I think, is really what makes the difference. That's great. That, that's really great. Um, what would you say, then, to a family who is struggling with their special needs child? They're looking for answers. They're not sure where to turn, and what could they do to get the right kind of help? So... You know, some of this will be, a, a, I guess, sort of a reiteration of some points I just finished making or have made at some point in, in our discussion. But I'll kind of, you know, emphasize them, you know, point by point as much as I can. Number one, trust your gut. Trust your own abilities and your, and your own desires to, to do well, to succeed. Remember, your kid's doing the best they can with what they know, with what they have available to them, and so are you. Um, remember that. And remember all those impressions you've had all along and what you've been reacting to all along, regardless of whether people told you you were right or wrong or what other people thought. Trust your gut. And remember, you're the expert on your kid. I mean, I certainly bring specialized knowledge and, and some expertise and understanding and, and pinning things down like, you know, the, the issues that we're, that we're trying to deal with. Um, but at the end of the day, that's a contribution to a much bigger picture, and I'm still not the expert on your kid. You are. I might have an expert opinion on some perspective, on some little piece of, of the puzzle that is your kid, um, but you're still the expert on your entire kid. Um, I'm just a consultant when you get right down to it. Um, number two, seek consultation from competent professionals. And that's a loaded statement because how do you know who's a competent professional? It's not just having a degree. It's not just having a Ph.D. or an MSW or an M.D. or anything else that you might see out there. I mean, that we'd like to think um, at least establishes a sort of fundamental basis of competence, but given how wide the variety is in both the styles and as well as the quality of training programs that produce those degrees, um, even just having the degree isn't a guarantee that you're, you're dealing with competence. Um, it takes more than that. Um, it takes really thorough training. It also takes really sound thinking. It takes knowing how to 
solve problems. It takes knowing how to apply uh, the knowledge and the skills that you've been trained in. And there does need to be some, some specialized training in understanding kids, understanding learning problems, understanding neuropsychology and how all these processes um, interact with each other, you know, the, the brain-based things with the school and the social and the larger environmental things. Knowing those interrelations is going to be necessary. So, yeah, look for credentials, look for training backgrounds, but also get, get personal referrals. Um, talk to professionals that you already know and respect. Talk to friends and neighbors that you know and respect. Um, sure, ask people at school. Um, anybody that might have some kind of knowledge um, and provide some kind of information. Their recommendations may not end up being the right ones for you, but at the beginning it's, it's all data. And then at some point you take the re recommendations that you get and you call different people and you see how they interact with you on the phone or how their office interacts with you on the phone, how they answer your questions, um, how you, you get a lot of information just from how you get treated by certain places. Um, and then at some point you take a, a leap and you schedule the appointment and you get the initial consultation. So I guess, you know, that kind of leads to point number two, not just seek consultation and, you know, based on some referrals or recommendations that you get, but also go ahead and do the initial consultation appointment. That doesn't commit you to anything further, even if the professional says a formal evaluation, a more thorough evaluation is necessary, or even if they recommend a course of therapy, if that really seems to be more of what's indicated. Bottom line, you're still the one that's going to make the choice about whether you're proceeding any further or not. Um, most professionals, if they recommend an evaluation, that initial interview where you're getting a lot of the background information is part of the evaluation process. And so if you proceed with the evaluation, the cost of that gets rolled into the overall evaluation process. If you choose to stop right there, well, then, yeah, you, you pay for the initial consultation time, um, and then you take whatever recommendations they give you under advisement, and you decide how you want to proceed from there. But go ahead and, and do the initial consultation. Don't be afraid to do that because a good, competent professional not only is going to do a thorough review of the situation, they're going to give you very specific advice about how to proceed. They're going to give you their, their recommendations. They're also going to outline the options for how to pursue those recommendations, whether it's with them or with somebody else. Um, and if they don't think an evaluation is warranted or if they don't even think treatment is warranted, if they think perhaps more school-based interventions or tutoring interventions really would be more appropriate, they're going to tell you that. Um, just because you go for the initial consultation doesn't mean they're going to try to rope you into doing all the services with them. Um, you know, I, I guess there might be people out there in the community who would do that, but really competent professionals that are experts in the field, that are respected by their peers and in the community, aren't going to do that. Um, they're going to tell you what they recommend and why, and that's it. And then they're going to let you know what the options are, and then you'll choose how you want to proceed. Um, so just take it one step at a time. Don't get overwhelmed and think, oh, my God, now we're in for everything and it's going to take forever. No, one step at a time. Do the initial consultation, see what comes out of that, and then take it from there. And if you're not sure, then you, you take some time to go and think about it. You sleep on it. Um, any good professional is going to encourage you to do that. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to play devil's advocate. I mean, this is part of the initial development of the relationship that I do with folks from the beginning is 
try to set up that kind of environment and even sometimes explicitly stating that, encouraging people. I want you to ask questions. I want you to understand this. I don't want you to be worried about being polite with me or being respectful just because I'm, you know, doctor guy or whatever. I want you to just be as blunt as you need to be and to be as cynical as you need to be. Challenge me because if I can't logically address your questions or if I can't logically address your challenges or if I get rattled by them and get defensive and get all, you know, disheveled and and it becomes this emotional tug-of-war, well, gee, you don't want to be working with me anyway. Ultimately, the professional you're working with needs to be able to logically address any questions or any concerns you have, however you bring them up. Um, I don't need you protecting my ego. I can do that okay on my own. This is not about me. I want you to get your questions answered. And if I feel ruffled by the conversation, I'll deal with that on my own later. In the end, that doesn't mean we're not going to work together. It just means, okay, fine. You know, we, we define the terms of engagement right away. Um, and I'm okay with that. But in the end, you know, when we do our evaluations and I'm going through the results, I, I remind people, I want you to do this. So play devil's advocate with me. If I can't address your questions with the pattern of data, if I can't logically prove the point, well, then perhaps we have bigger problems. Maybe I've missed something. Maybe we're off. And frankly, if that's true, I want to know that so that we can retool our thinking. Um, you know, somebody asked me at one point, you know, when, when somebody comes in and does an evaluation, they've committed themselves to as much time and, and as much cost as involved in doing the evaluation, um, do I ever feel compelled to diagnose something, even if there's really not a problem there, even if it's really just a uh, normal developmental glitch, do I ever feel compelled to identify and diagnose something just to kind of justify the outlay of time and money? And you know, some people might think it's a silly question. I don't. I thought it was a great question because I'm sure a lot of people think it, but just don't ask it. And my answer then, as it is now, is no, absolutely not. If there's really nothing going on, frankly, we're probably going to identify that in the first interview and not even go through the time and expense of an evaluation. But let's just say that, that it's unclear, and we do the evaluation, and we find out that it really is maybe a different, but still it's just a variation of a normal developmental process. There's a little bit of a lag in skill development, but it'll work itself out. And that's something that always is considered when we're doing evaluations of these kinds of learning differences or possible learning differences in younger kids, um, where the axioms with evaluating kids is um, the younger the kid, the more active cognitive development is going on, the muddier the waters, the less clear the picture is. Um, so we can identify, if we know the issues and we know the operational definitions of those issues, i.e. we know what specific skill sets um, should or should not be working that might be related to these issues, and if we know the normal developmental pace of skill development related to those skill sets underlying certain issues, which is all part of being a competent professional, um, we'll be able to, we'll know what markers to look for and we'll know what to identify that says either there is or is not a potential glitch going on. Um, But in the course of making that determination, we'll also be accounting for normal developmental patterns or normal developmental progress in these skills. not everybody develops at exactly the same pace. Not every skill develops at exactly the same time. So we know we have to allow, with younger kids, we have to allow a little bit of window of time um, for normal developmental variations in certain skills before we jump to really heavy conclusions. So as an example, um, there's this old myth that 
we can't identify learning disorders, dyslexia being one example, until at least a kid's third grade year. Um, and that's just not at all true. Where that statement comes from is not that we can't identify the developmental patterns that define dyslexia. We can identify that, especially in more severe cases, um, in the preschool and kindergarten years, certainly in the first or second grade years if we need to. Um, it's all about patterns of cognitive skill development and patterns of performance. Um, and if we've done a thorough evaluation, yeah, we could diagnose dyslexia before the third grade, no question. The, where that myth came from is based on the old rules for how we define a learning disorder, based on the discrepancy between academic skill development or achievement in, in some areas versus intellectual potential for what people in the field would call the IQ achievement discrepancy model. Um, and practically speaking, a lot of times we didn't get a, suffic a sufficient enough disparity between IQ and achievement to formally diagnose a learning disorder until enough time had passed, i.e. enough failure and frustration had been experienced, and the kid's um, pace of learning and skill development was just sufficiently slow and slower than um, their peer group that we got enough of a disparity between where the kid was at versus where they should be at a certain age and, and also given their IQ. A lot of times that didn't happen until about the third grade year. Um, but that wasn't because of how learning disorders manifest. That, was, that had everything in the world to do with how they were being misdefined and how the procedures for identifying them were wrong. They were inaccurate. Um, now that that law has been changed, um, yes, we can identify things. Competent professionals that know these developmental issues can identify them whenever the data actually adds up to say, yes, this is an issue, and it's not just a developmental glitch, um, and the issue is this. If we know what patterns to look for, and we've in our thinking accounted for normal developmental variations and not jumped premature conclusions, we can identify it and formally diagnose it at whatever age is appropriate. Doesn't matter grade level, et cetera. You know, just things being what they are, oftentimes, yeah, it doesn't get formally diagnosed until second grade year. First grade sometimes we can see markers that identify risk before that. It's rare to actually get a formal diagnosis prior to the first grade. Um, but theoretically it can happen. So in the end, you go for the initial consultation, and professional is going to say whether an evaluation is warranted or not. And getting back to the original question of, gee, do I feel compelled to diagnose something or not? No, absolutely not, I don't. If there's really nothing going on, if we thought there might be, but all the pattern of data says, no, there's not, I'm going to tell you that. If the pattern of data is not clear, and it still says, look, there is a little bit of a glitch here, um, it might represent the early manifestations of a specific learning disorder, but it's on the milder end of the spectrum, or the kids will write and they're compensating, um, and so we just need a little bit more time, and we need to closely monitor the kids' ongoing responses to interventions that we're going to do, um, and their ongoing skill development, and then relook at things in a year or two and see how things progressed. Has the little glitch worked itself out, or has it continued to morph into a more obvious pattern that's defining a learning disorder? Well, then fine. That's what I'll tell you. And then I will help identify what are the markers that would say this is resolving or not. And in those kind of cases, I'll tell people, look, even though we're not clear, 
just for the sake of making sure that we do the right thing, we're going to intervene as if this is the learning disorder we're talking about. I'm going to make the same kind of recommendations and recommend the same type of specialty tutoring and the same type of accommodations. Um, and if it really isn't a learning disorder, the interventions are just going to help to kind of kickstart the normal developmental, developmental learning process that's going on and move things forward and help things click into gear like they're supposed to. If it is a learning disorder, um, those interventions are at least going to help. They're going to help to strengthen some skills um, while the kid's young enough that the brain is still um, malleable enough to learn new ways of thinking and doing things um, and develop some compensatory strategies before they experience the more severe disruptions and, and frustrations that um, would occur without some kind of intervention. So in any event, we're going to intervene as if it's a learning disorder and then just evaluate progress and we'll relook at the question in a year or two and make our determination at that time. If it really is some type of an issue, whether it's ADHD, anxiety, or learning disorder, well then fine. I'm gonna tell you that too. Because in the end, yes, I would like for people to, I'd like to be fully right right now. I'd like for people to fully understand that, get it, understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, um, agree with it, and frankly be happy with the service. That would be ideal. But in the end, that's not my main agenda. My main agenda is to be right, not just now, but forever. Um, my idea is to be right in 10 years or 15 years or 20 or 25 years. Um, so if I say something now, regardless of what my opinion is about what the issue is or is not, um, and if it's not what you want to hear, if it seems frustrating, if you find yourself going, my God, why did we do this? Um, or, or if you disagree with me and just, just think, I'm completely off my rocker for, for suggesting what I'm suggesting. Um, if that's the, the immediate reaction, but then five years from now or ten years from now, um, after watching responses to interventions and watching the kids' ongoing development, we find out, son of a gun, I was right. Um, and things have played out the way we anticipated, and we have been doing the right things, and thank goodness for that. We doubted it earlier, but now clearly that's the case. I mean, in the end, that's what I want. Um, I want for things to be done correctly. So, yes, I'd like for everyone to be happy with my services now, but I really want for people to be appreciative of the fact that we nailed it and determined the right course of action. I want for that to, to be the, the end result realization. Whether it happens immediately or not, the end result is where, what I really care about. Um, so that goes back to I'm going to tell you what I think and why now. And I know every time I do that, there's a risk that you may not like it. Um, hopefully, if I've done my job right and we've cultivated a good relationship, we'll get the points across in a way that at least makes sense, whether we agree or not. At least it'll make sense and we'll be respectful. Um, so that all kind of goes back to the initial consultation where, you know, you're not committed to anything else. You lay everything out. We give you our opinions about um, what we think may be going on and options about how to proceed. Um, if people are, are very apprehensive about whether they want to do anything or not, for whatever reason, um, I'll oftentimes outline both conservative as well as more aggressive courses of action and say, look, this is one option about how to proceed, and here's what would make sense about it, and here's what outcome it would yield. But if you want to do a more conservative step-by-step -step approach, um, here's the way to do it, and make sure that we continue to stay on top of the issue and just 
don't let it, we don't want to let it rest. We don't want to forget about what we're looking for. We just want to make sure that we're monitoring the right variables. And here's what you would look for to say this thing is working itself out. And here's what you would look for that would say, nope, actually we need to kind of go on back and finish that evaluation we were talking about. Um, so I'll lay out both courses of action, and then in the end, it's all about how you, you making the decision about how you want to proceed. Um, I, just, I want people to be informed consumers and make the decision that actually seems to make the most sense for them at that particular point in time, knowing that circumstances change. And I want them to feel like they've made the right decision. I don't want anyone to ever feel pressured or coerced into doing anything. Um, if they're doing something, I want them to know why. So I guess that's the main piece of advice. Trust your gut. Know your kid. Remember your kid's doing the best with what they got. Remember the frustrations generally are rooted in those normal desires to be successful and to be competent and to be respected and the mismatch between how they're approaching things and what's actually working or not um, and the conflicts between, gee, there's those normal motivations and yet they're not playing out. That's where usually the stress is coming from. And it's all about just understanding what are the glitches that are causing, that are disrupting the kids' efforts to do what they need to do and causing those, those mismatches between what they're doing and what life is asking them. And let's logically understand it. Get consultation, know what your options are, and then make an informed decision. Develop a relationship with somebody that you actually um, believe to be competent and that you can trust and never be afraid to ask questions. No question is silly. And in fact, if you know, if, if people are really still kind of on the fence about whether they agree with findings or not or what to do or not, um, it is absolutely okay to ask for a second opinion. I will give people referrals to other competent professionals to get other opinions um, anytime they want. And uh, I know it might be tempting to think, gee, if you're referring me to somebody that you know, you're going to kind of go behind the scenes and kind of lobby them to kind of agree with you. That's not going to happen. Um, bottom line, we, none of us professionals can talk to each other about anything unless we have your explicit written permission to do that. Um, so if you don't want us to communicate, we don't communicate. And even if you do allow us to communicate, I'm going to tell people, look, here's what I think. Here's all the information I got. You take a look at it from your perspective and see, see what you think. See if you agree, and if you don't, fine. Let's lay it out, and let's figure out what's going on. Um, again, it's not about my ego. It's about let's make sure we have all the right variables identified, and let's make sure that we're accurate. And if I missed part of the, the picture, I want to make sure that somebody else gets it and we, and we fill in the gaps. Because in the end, that just helps everybody. It helps the kid. It helps the family. Frankly, it helps the professionals. I mean, people need to know that you're not afraid um, of disagreement and you're not afraid um, to admit when you've missed something or you're, or you're wrong, and you're not afraid to collaborate with other professionals um, if you've reached the, the limits of your knowledge base and you need to get somebody else that has a different skill set that you don't have or if you just want to get a different perspective on things. They need to know that you um, are competent enough and, and confident in, enough to do that. Um, that's all about just solving the problem in the big picture of things. I want to thank once again Dr. John McCaskill for taking so much time, two and a half hours out of his own schedule, to do such a thorough job in explaining his research and his methods for understanding learning disorders. We have a link to Dr. McCaskill's family service practices in the Detroit area on the page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. 
And of course, we want to remind you to please share Special Parents Confidential with everyone you know. We have social media buttons on our website that make it easy for you to do it. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.